Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. China is projected to launch about 100 space missions this year, which will set a new record for the country. On Monday, the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation released its annual Blue Book, giving an overview of what to expect in 2024. Why are there so many missions planned for this year? And what progress has China made over the past year in its aerospace industry? Joining me today are Dr. Yang Yuguang, Vice Chair, International Astronautical Federation Space Transportation Committee, Professor Bernard Foying, CEO of the Lunar Explorers Society, and Ramco Timmermans, CEO of SpaceSide, a strategic marketing consulting agency for the global space industry. Welcome to Dialogue. Uh, Yuguang, we'll start with you. You know, uh, as we said, the China uh, Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation released its annual blue book, uh, basically about the blueprint uh, for 2024. Uh, you know, it mentioned the planned space activities, uh, especially the missions uh, to the space, about 100 of them. You know, it's a bit of a surprise for a lot of people, right? Well, you know, that's indeed, this is a very big number for all of us because you know that the scale of China's uh, space activities are already very, very huge. So today we are already a big country in the world in space technology, but still we are not an advanced country. So we hope that in the future, in the near future, we can be an advanced country. Among these 100 launches, you know that some important like, like the uh, launch of the Shenzhou spaceship, the Tianzhou spacecraft, and also, as you mentioned, our Chang'e 6 sample return mission from the far side of moon. But you know that most of the launches come from the satellites directly which can serve our uh, national economy and our daily life, including those uh, remote sensing satellites, the navigation satellites, and also uh, our communication satellites. So uh, it proves that today, with the scale of China's space activities bigger and bigger, and also with the technologies more and more practical, today the space activities can do more contribution to our national economy and our daily life just because of this, so we can have so much launches and also so much space applications. Mm, uh, a lot of applications uh, and a lot to expect for this year. Uh, Remco, you know, this, uh, you know, 100 launches there. So tell us, you know, help us understand, especially our viewers, you know, to understand what are the major tasks for this year for the Chinese uh, space force, let's say, space um, exploration. Well, space exploration, you say, this is really, we're moving from space exploration to space exploitation. And that is important because in the light of the audience, uh, we always think of space explorations to discover things. Now it is really the time to benefit from space. So um, my predecessor talked about uh, Earth observation satellites that are important for life on Earth, for discovering the state of the Earth. We have uh, satellite navigation that is now uh, an important part of life. And now we're moving to this phase where we're going to do experiments in space stations and more excitingly, and we talk about that later, going uh, back to the moon. And China uh, plays a very important role in this global development of space exploitation. Well, Bernard, if you look at the number, the volume of launches, you know, about 100 of them, what does the, the number say about the Chinese uh, space industry? Yes, yeah, so okay, clearly China has advanced tremendously in developing both space industry, but also all the support infrastructure, and as well as directed the program from Earth's application to a program where we are exploring space from orbit, around the Earth and also towards the Moon. Myself, I was involved in the first 
moon mission of this millennium, smart one from Europe in 2003. But in the meantime, since 2007, China has launched more than seven missions to the moon with a plan which was very well defined and with delivering some major advances with a mission in orbit, with landers, where we had um, a lander, Chang'e 3, on the surface of the moon. Chang'e 4 was on the far side of the moon. And then we had Chang'e 5 with a sample return from the moon. Also, China has been involved in mission exploring Mars, a beautiful Tianwen uh, uh, rover, and in parallel, has a conduct a significant program of uh, human exploration in orbit with the Shangong uh, space station. Mm -hmm. So this shows the maturity, but also the awareness that what we do for space exploration is indeed benefiting the Earth mm -hmm. in knowledge, technology advance, in inspiring the uh, society, the young professional. And you need many engineers in China. We need also many in Europe. This way we can really inspire them into uh, careers that are going to benefit all society. Right. Ultimately, uh, it's about the human exploration uh, of this uh, space. Uh, Yu Guang, you know, according to Blue Book, you know, China will conduct its first launch of the, you know, speak of infrastructure, uh, Long March 6C and Long March 12 uh, carrier rockets. Tell us more about these two types of uh, uh, launchers here. Well, uh, this is a very interesting point after today's uh, our plan in this year. You know that uh, developing new launch vehicles is also uh, always a very important task for us to master the grasping technologies and also to uh, have uh, new abilities. You see that today uh, the mainstream of the world is to have reusable launch vehicle mm -hmm. to reduce the cost. So I believe that these two new new launch vehicles are will be a very important step for us to master these technologies. You know that. Uh, uh, in this schedule, uh, you know that the Long March 6C uh, is the uh, derivative of the Long March 6 series, uh, which made by uh, Shanghai Academies of Space Technology. Uh, but you know that three uh, still uh, adopt the uh, the practical uh, diameter of 3.35 meters of the fuselage of the launch vehicle. But you know that the Long March 12 will be a new one. Mm -hmm. The diameter is. 3.8 meters, which never appeared before in China's space program. So this is a new one, uh, which keep a good balance between the volume of the rocket engine and also to have more engines uh, in a certain within a certain uh, diameter. So to have a new diameter is always a big tax because you know that's concerns with the uh, basic uh, infrastructures and also many important facilities for us manufacturing these launch vehicles. So this time the Long March 12, I believe in the future will play a very important role in the whole development roadmap of China's launch vehicle technology. Mm, well, strong infrastructure obviously is, uh, is necessary for further exploration uh, to help uh, with the efforts. Uh, uh, Ramco, of course, you know, we know Tiangong Space Station, uh, the Chinese uh, Tiangong there. And so uh, two rounds of uh, personnel exchanges will be uh, conducted uh, for 2024. So what are the major tasks, you know, or what's the next step you know, for Tiangong Space Station? Well, there's, there's two questions. The, the major tasks in the space station, of course, are the different elements that we've seen over the last years on board of Tiangong. Science is the key mission still. Science in preparation for things like manufacturing in space um, and, and doing research in all sorts. Medical field is very important but also education and outreach. Bernard mentioned uh, the importance of uh, outreach and of inspiring the young workforce for the next things that are to come. That is a very important part. Now, crew rotations is something that happens regularly. 
Uh, we're also looking at renewing the space station. There's talk of a new central core of the Chenggong space station that may extend its life from 10 to 15 years that uh, is, is being talked about. We have a new space telescope that will be mounted not this year but hopefully next year to the space station. So it is a continuous cycle of renewal, adding elements that are of benefit to science and of course to this uh, important role of inspiring. So Bernard, uh, obviously, I mean, two rounds of uh, personnel exchanges. Uh, anything beyond that, you know, to expect uh, uh, from the missions to Tiangong? So we have really followed all the progress of the Tiangong uh, program from the two precursor missions that we had in 2011, 2016. We witnessed also any uh, some of the cargo transport uh, with the Tiansu. And we have now a full-fledged uh, station where astronauts can live, they can work, they can deploy experiments. So now we have this experiment module, Wenchan and Mengchan, where there are really great experiments. Like I have been involved a lot in the experiment on the International Space Station, and I see that a lot of science is coming now from uh, Tiangong. We have also this uh, telescope uh, module that is Chungtian. Uh, where there will be discovery on exploring uh, the universe. Now, I would like also to mention Changong is a very international station, as there was a special program with the United Nations that led to have 17 experiments that were selected from the worldwide community, including from a number of young professionals worldwide and that are going on to go on board Changong. Here, I am speaking from the Space Business Innovation Center of uh, uh, the Europe, ESTEC, and I'm uh, surrounded by a number of uh, candidate astronauts, space researchers, entrepreneurs. They, some of them are training to go in space. Uh, we have built moon-based prototype where we learn how to work on, in space and in the moon, and they are all eager to see opportunities also of using Tiangong in a joint program to develop scientific experiment, technology experiment, cooperation across the world, and also looking at business opportunities mm -hmm. because uh, uh, and as benefit uh, towards all society. So clearly we are looking forward to the next step of the Changong uh, development and also learning how to work, live in space and uh, developing also opportunities of uh, putting some uh, joint payload in collaboration with, uh, with uh, China on Tiangong and beyond. Yeah, Tiangong and beyond, uh, you know, uh, from Tiangong to the lunar exploration, uh, that's also part of the plan for 2024, uh, Yu you know. Uh, where are we now in terms of the Chinese exploration on this moon? You know, we, we, we mentioned a little bit about the Chang'e 6, and what's the exact, uh, you know, specific mission for this year? Well, you know, this year we will conduct uh, another uh, robotic mission to the moon, uh, which belongs to the fourth phase of our lunar exploration program. In the previous programs, we must detect already of orbiting, landing, and also sample return from the moon. But today, we are going to have a, a lunar station on the lunar surface. So this belongs to the fourth phase. But the first thing first, we will get samples from back, uh, far side of the moon. Uh, as Bernard has already mentioned, because you know that the near side of the moon and the far side of the moon is quite different. So to get these samples from far side will be very, very meaningful for us to have a better understanding of the evolution of the whole history of the moon and also with the history of the solar system. So it will be a very important mission. But also before that, we will launch the Magpie Bridge 2 or the Chue Chiao 2 data release satellites to have a more smooth mission.
Well, Remco, help us understand, you know, like, of course, you know, people are also talking about sending the you know, man to the moon again. You know, it's also part of the Chinese long-term plan, you know, astronauts to the surface of the moon. Before that, you know, what kind of preparation is needed, you know? Uh, are we doing that, exact that, to prepare? And when probably China will do that, you know, to send a human being on the surface of the moon? Sure. Well, this is the most exciting part of the Chinese space program, according to the whole world, is the methodic approach into preparing for human missions to the moon. And, and the human missions to the moon have been announced last year in China to be planned for 2030. This is an extremely aggressive goal that uh, is unheard of. That was a shock in the space industry that China is planning on sending the first Chinese people to the moon in 2030. And it's been preparing in the Chinese uh, lunar exploration program uh, methodically for that already. We've seen the different Chang'e missions that we, uh, that we talked about where new technology is being tested. This year we have Chang'e 6 going to the moon for another sample return, but also this, uh, this mini lunar station that uh, Yang Wang talked about. And we will see a succession of these steps towards preparing the lunar surface, the infrastructure on the lunar surface, for these first astronauts arriving in 2030. And, and this is unheard of. And this is maybe triggering some of, a, of an international competition, if you like, to see which nations, and hopefully all nations, will be involved in this new phase of, uh, of humans on the moon. It's very exciting. And I know that China is playing a big role. Many other countries are playing a big role. India just announced its, its first cruise to go to space uh, with the aim of, of extending that to the moon. The US, of course, the Artemis program. Uh, and we have people like Bernard who are uh, working, who have been working for many years on preparing all these different activities that we're going to have on the moon. So this is very exciting. Uh, exciting moment. Uh, Bernard, I mean, if there's a competition, that's a good competition. I mean, this is a um, human progress in understanding, of course, the space, and also probably make good use of those, uh, those landings, uh, obviously, there. Yes, actually, it's a mix of cooperation and competition. In terms of cooperation, I'm very proud and also honored that I was involved very early on when we had our mission Smart One around the moon. We collaborated with worldwide scientists, including from China, to share the data. And then I was tasked to organize a support from European Space Agency to the first Chang'e 123 mission. We gave some additional ground support to receive the data, to help controlling the mission. And uh, also we have been participating to uh, the Chang'e 4 and 5. Now also the scientists are very eager on these beautiful opportunities, like for Chang'e 6, 7. So there are various scientists from European countries that have delivered some instruments uh, from, from France, from uh, Sweden, uh, from also the, the Netherlands. And we are wanted to take this opportunity to do science on this uh, lunar mission, where you have a Chinese program very well structured and delivering on time. So in Europe, we have to learn from China how to plan and deliver on time and under on budget. But also, we see now the convergence of the development of the human spaceflight program on Chang'an that will also be a great preparation for uh, operation on the lunar surface with human and uh, robot. So we are also uh, looking at opportunities where we can uh, jointly, uh, in the frame of the International Lunar Research Station that is led by China, contribute also some of our activities, 
Here I am with a group of uh, young professional uh, researchers developing payload, but also training as uh, astronaut on a, a prototype moon base uh, that uh, we have built, where we try to learn how we are going to live and uh, work on the moon, what system we need in terms of communication, energy, life support. So there's a lot of beautiful challenges, but also we are going to develop some technologies like uh, sustainable energy, sustainable uh, food production, extraction of resources that are also going to have uh, some spin-off of what we do on Earth and hopefully also developing some uh, uh, lunar economy. And um, so we'll have not only benefit in terms of science, technology, but also opportunities for uh, business and also for educating a, a, a large uh, population on some of the challenges, technical challenges that could even serve the Earth, like sustainable uh, habitat, uh, climate uh, change, uh, electric vehicles, there are various technologies we can test in space, and then this is going to benefit uh, all of us on Earth. Yeah, uh, practical use of those research. Uh, well, so that's the end uh, for the first part of the discussion. Many thanks to our guests. And uh, next, we'll talk about Hong Kong. Uh, but before that, we'll have a short break. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platforms and get ready to dive in. Welcome back. Public consultation on the legislation of Article 23 of the Basic Law of the Hong Kong SAR will conclude this Wednesday. The article aims to ensure the safety and stability of Hong Kong's business and investment environment and will continue to make Hong Kong an attractive and competitive, uh, competitive international city. What is the significance of Article 23 and what does this mean for the city? Joining me in this part are Lawrence Ma, barrister and chairman of Hong Kong Legal Exchange Foundation and Professor John Gong from the University of International Business and Economics. Welcome to Dialogue. Uh, Ma, I will start with you. you know, tell us, you know, for those uh, who probably is not that familiar with this uh, Hong Kong situation, First of all, what is Article 23 of Hong Kong Basic Law and what is the original intention of having this article? Yes, the, as you all know, the National People's Congress has enacted in the year 2020 a national security law for specifically for Hong Kong. In, in that mainland legislation, which becomes part of Hong Kong law, it covers some areas of national security offenses. For example, uh, succession, which is uh, separating, uh, splitting the country, subversion, subverting the government, overthrowing the government, anti-terrorist offenses, that if you are a terrorist, you'll be caught under that law. And as well as uh, collaborating with foreign forces to influence or to damage our, our national security. So these are the four major offenses. Now. Article 23 is different. Article 23 is Article 23 of the basic law. The basic law is the, the mini constitution of Hong Kong, which has been in place in Hong Kong since 1990. So it, it has already become part of Hong Kong's law. Now in, in the basic law, which is Hong Kong's mini constitution, as I said, there is an article in there. There's in total 160 articles in the basic law. 
within that 160 articles, there is an Article 23. Article 23 says, well, Hong Kong is responsible to enact its own national security law. And then you'll be asking, well, since 1997, Hong Kong's reunification with the mainland China, why it hasn't enacted Article 23 legislation? Well, this is exactly the reason why right. uh, we need to do it now. Go, go ahead. You know, like, you know, people naturally will ask this question, you know, Hong Kong was supposed to, uh, let's say, make law based on, you know, Article 23, right? But why in over 20 years, uh, we are still talking about uh, Article 23? Well, we have. We have in the first term of government in 19, uh, after 1997, the first administration of Mr. Tong Chi Hua, there has been an attempt to legislate on Article 23. But it, there was, it, but it triggered a lot of um, oppositions from both from local citizens and, and from international community concerning well, whether freedoms in Hong Kong would be cut down. So at that time, it was in 2003, 2003 when SARS was happening. So the economy was bad and people were concerned. So the government actually backed down and withdraw the bill. Now, after the bill in 2003 was, was withdrawn, problem came. Hong Kong, when on one hand, Hong Kong is a, a free city. And on the other hand, Hong Kong is susceptible to foreign influences because of the freedom that has been guaranteed by basic law. So people can come into Hong Kong and do a lot of stuff, do a lot of things that, that hurts the city um, and not be caught because there's, there's no law, no law at all protecting Hong Kong's national security. So, and therefore you can see in, after 2003, in 2014, there's Occupy Central, people blocked the road and traffic were not going through the city. And in 2019, you got the Black Cat riots. You know, people stormed the street and uh, damaging, damaging stores and, and coercing the government in giving in. So all these were, were, were because there's no law regulating national security. So people were not scared. Mm -hmm. And foreign influences, foreign powers were able to come in. So, uh, spies and agencies were able to come in and train our people in order to teach them how to overthrow the government. Right. So these are all the problems when, when you don't have a national security law protecting the city. Right. John, you know, legitimate concerns. I, th I think, you know, as a part of China, Hong Kong, of course, has a duty and responsibility to protect the national security. You know, what's your understanding of this Article 23 and what's the prospect of having it approved this time around? Well, in my view, Article 23 is, should be the last piece, uh, you know, that has to be closed uh, uh, in order to establish a complete uh, legal infrastructure for Hong Kong. I mean, it's part of the constitution, um, uh, mini constitution as it's called in Hong Kong, and has to be, it should be done a long time ago. I think, you know, the so-called concerns and pressure from international community is, is really muddling the water. I mean, I think, you know, there's no, absolutely no doubt that there needs to be a piece of legislation concerning national security. Um, the things, uh, there were the five aspects that we've been discussed so far, you know, insurrection and, and also concerning treaty for example, uh, uh, a theft of state secrets um, and, and sabotage related to uh, national security. Uh, all of these things are legitimate issues. I think that you know the the, the, the the critical matter is respect to the details. You know the concerns that have been raised so far, so-called encroaching upon the political autonomy in Hong Kong. Um, you know shouldn't be sort of interpreted as a reason 
to hang to 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 hamper this piece of legislation. Uh, you know, the, the the exact meaning, for example, regarding theft of national security, the boundary between you know legitimate regionalism uh, and uh, state secret uh, theft. They have to be defined well. I mean, all of these things can be discussed and and and, uh, and legislated over. Uh, these are not the reasons for mm -hmm. stopping this legislation. So I think, uh, you know, I think the, the people are concerned about the political autonomy in Hong Kong, the freedom in Hong Kong, had better spend their time to work out the exact wordings, the exact definitions of, of this piece of legislation, as opposed to you know, wholeheartedly and, and wholesale opposing this, this legis legislative effort. Mm -hmm. uh, well, John, of course, related to this uh, lawmaking effort, of course, this is really about the future of this international city, you know, Hong Kong here. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Mr. Xia Baolong, the head of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, uh, who represents the central government, uh, you know, said in a statement recently that, you know, one country, two systems uh, governing uh, the principle uh, will be kept as a permanent feature uh, of Hong Kong governance there. What's your understanding? Yeah, so, you know, it's a matter of interpreting what we mean by one country, two systems, right? So I think uh, from China's perspective, from mainland China's perspective, that, you know, it, this commitment, it, it hasn't been really broken, and you know, it's not going to be broken, in my view. I think, uh, you know, the, regarding the future of Hong Kong, the economic and political future of Hong Kong, you know, it has its challenges, especially uh, as, as our friend uh, Roche has, has pointed out in a recent article, uh, that, um, you know, Hong Kong, one, yeah. yeah, Hong Kong in a way, is indeed um, s sort of forced to pick a side in, in the larger context of uh, competition between the United States and China. And inevitably, Hong Kong is going to be affected. But I think in, in spite of this, uh, Hong Kong still has this unique characteristics has you know it's definitely is different from mainland China and a special role here is a is a, a sort of a bridge between mainland China and, and the West and I think this role still hasn't really been uh, diminished it still has a future in, in that capacity uh, and I think every time you look at the history of Hong Kong you know the numerous times that Hong Kong's future has been doubted and every time Hong Kong bounced back with a much stronger Hong Kong and I was imagine that uh, this time it would be the same uh, you know Hong Kong still remains to be a good place for investment mm. uh, for uh, Chinese investors as well as foreign investors. Right. Well, with that, we come to the end of today's show. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qindu. See you next time. Discover the realities and responses to our changing climate with Climate Watch. Uncover critical issues such as the Maasai Mara's disrupted wildebeest migration and the drop in the Panama Canal's water levels. Delve into solutions for a sustainable future. Tune in to Climate Watch on your favorite podcast platform. Become more eco-conscious and take action to protect our planet. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.